Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. All right, everybody, part two of Is Intersectionality a Religion? Um, thank you for writing in. This has been interesting. We've never really asked you guys to uh, write in specifically for something like this with a part two follow-up. Don't usually really get all that political on the show either. It's a bit more relevant here because this is some of the politics affecting academia affecting some of the studies done um, in some of the fields that we discuss on the show. Um, those of you that uh, that did write in, as I predicted, there was uh, there was no big outrage. There wasn't. I didn't get any hate mail or anything like that. A number of you just wrote in and were uh, a little bit unconvinced um, by some of the points that were being made. Um, by, uh, by Peter. I thought he was maybe overgeneralizing. And I, I think I would have to agree, uh, with that. But it was a, it was just the first part. We get a lot more specific and in depth in this interview. And, um, yeah, I, uh, this is, uh, <laughs> I didn't know, um, you know, when I reach out to guests and I ask, I thought I was going to be doing, a podcast about uh, about atheism, which is already a, a can of worms, and then um, but I have my guests talk about whatever they want to talk about, and and uh, Peter wanted to talk about the even bigger can of worms, um, which is some of the PC and and uh, diversity stuff going on in academia these days, and so is is interesting. I'm I'm glad that I did this in this part two. I think really cleared th- some things up. And had some, uh, we made a lot of really, uh, good points. This is, this is stuff that seems I've, I've had a lot of past guests talk about this stuff affecting some of their work. And so this is something that it is relevant. If you want to know my biases and personal opinion, just because it influences, um, how I am as an interviewer, I, I hope that I treated everyone fairly because I definitely, um, as an outsider, I'm uh I'm a little biased. I I guess it doesn't the um the alarms of of the uh virtue advertising out of control 
social justice warriors i i they don't uh the uh, the urgency of it is um and and just the the drama of it, it just doesn't ring as true to me as an outsider i guess it'd just be an easier sell to me if uh if say our like the president of the united states was a multicultural transgender mer person who was trying to deport every straight white male and and ban them and everything else but uh, that is not the case um what is the case is that the president of the united states is um the exemplar of uh bigotry and uh and bullying and privilege and so uh it seems to me it seems like we still have a little uh a little ways to go that's the press that is the that's the kind of uh the least of his responsibility is to kind of be a spokesperson for the american people and the american people have chosen as their spokesperson uh someone who openly like mocks handicapped people and and uh yells about minorities and wanting to get rid of all of them and how dangerous they are all of the time so uh just my personal um take is that we we have a ways to go still um to balance the scales so uh you may notice you may have noticed that uh influencing um my interview so i hope that i was uh, fair to my guess, uh, this is just, uh, you guys kind of wrote in with the same, um, sort of thing. So, uh, I think I'm kind of representing my, my listeners in the same way. But my guest today, that being said, um, my guest today, um, made, raised some absolutely excellent points. Um, I do believe, I mean, I know from experience, anytime some, some study comes out and finds some, gender difference in in humans and oh my gosh this is just the edgiest thing in the world there is absolutely um there's absolutely issues on on both sides of things i my i'm i mean <laughs> my take on it is is that uh that you can always err on two sides of an issue it'd be like if if we we're talking about global warming here and there's two extreme sides, there's one side that is making way too big of an issue out of global warming and, and really exaggerating the effects of global warming. And that's true. There's people out there doing that. And then the other side on the other extreme end is people who are uh, denying um, global warming entirely, saying things like uh, God wouldn't do that because uh, and he said after Noah's Ark he'd put rainbows in the sky to remind uh, you know whatever so I'm saying out of those two sides one is a bit more inaccurate if you ask me and a bit more um, dangerous and that's kind of the way that I feel about uh, about these issues so um, I hope I'm not being unfair to my guests by saying that I just think that um I think that you guys should know my biases going into this. But once again, um, these were, this is my opinion. My biases don't really matter that much in this show. My, my opinions, uh, although I get to do, um, these intros and I get to present my takes on things, um, really in the, in the interviews, they take 
a bit of a backseat to what my guests have to say. I book guests that are much smarter than I am and, uh, and know a lot more about these topics than I do. And, and so I view it as my job to, uh, to listen to their point of views and, and learn. And I don't want to have like a big, uh, political debate show. This isn't what this podcast is all about. Some of you, uh, recommended getting someone, um, you know, the gender studies professor on or something to kind of, uh, balance out the perspectives. I think that's, uh, I think that's an excellent idea. I'll work toward, uh, doing it. Booking this podcast is kind of erratic and all over the place. It much depends on, um, who gets recommended by other people and so on and so forth. Hopefully, eventually we'll, we'll get to that. But, uh, but yeah. Um, so going into this, you, you may kind of have the same feeling, uh, about it that I do, but do know that this is, this is a real issue that is, that I know from talking to many, many people is something that is, uh, really affecting academia and academia is, um, a very important foundation for our, education and and for our future and so it's a it's a relevant issue i'm happy that we're talking about it and i'm happy that all of you guys wrote in with your um opinions and ideas and i hope that i got across some of your uh questions and concerns in the interview enjoy this episode are we yes where are we here why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have two guests with me for part two of Is Intersectionality a Religion? We have James A. Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose joining us. Um, Helen, you have the most interesting last name, so <laughs> would you uh, uh, give us a little bit of a background about yourself? Uh, yeah, certainly. I um, have studied uh, literature and the history of religion, and I focus on ideology and narratives. More recently, I have been looking at postmodernism, intersectional feminism, and um, social justice movements, sort of theoretically and culturally, and I've, I've written quite a lot about that. Right. And James? Yeah. So my background in that's relevant, I've written a couple of books about religion, four books, three of which were really about religion, actually. The third book I wrote is the most relevant here is about religious psychology. So I studied why people believe religions from a psychological perspective. That book's called Everybody's Wrong About God. Not a very provocative title or anything <laughs> like that. And it's true. Everybody is wrong about God. Um, my most recent book was about death from a thoroughly secular perspective, just accepting death rather than trying to challenge it with religious narratives. So it's a little bit separate from, from this topic. And then I, with Peter Bogosian, wrote the conceptual penis as a social construct and got kind of thrust into this whole debate about feminism and gender roles or gender studies in particular and including intersectionality, which has kind of taken over much of the fields. Yeah, I was going to, that was going to be one of my first questions. How, how has, uh, how did the atheist movement seem to start t steering into, um, commenting on, on intersectionality? I think there was a division within, I mean, I, I'm not 
sure how coherent, cohesive the atheist movement ever really was anyway, mm. but there are definitely two distinct branches now. And one, um, sort of seems to accept, uh, social justice ideas sort of wholesale, the very identitarian postmodern um, social justice ideas, while the other half sort of retains the sceptical, rational, rationalist approach to ideology. And so it tends, and I tend to see intersectionality as in a very similar way to, to religion. It, it's, it's something which, which makes grand claims, but doesn't see the need for evidence and reason to support them. Right. Well, that was going to be one of my first questions, as you said, similar to religion. The the title is, Is Intersectionality a Religion? And to me, I wonder how much that just confuses the points that we're trying to make in a way. Because I, I, I think that obviously, so there's these ideologies and people are dogmatic about them. But does that necessarily make, uh, I, I guess I... I guess it confuses, uh, for me, it confuses the idea of what a, a religion is necessarily, because certainly people aren't in a survey. You're not going to say, see intersectionality as a thing that you can check, like, like Christianity or. Yeah, right. So I would actually say that it parallels religious behavior. It's probably, this came out in the Atlantic the other day. Somebody wrote an essay and it's probably the best articulation of the idea is it's people without religion seeking religion. So they act in religious ways. The religious impulses are coming out. They're wrapping around the ideology of intersectionality or that underlies intersectionality, which would be the uh, inherent nobility of the oppressed and, and rescuing the oppressed from, from oppressors and domination. And so I would say that it's more that intersectionality as both a community of people who subscribe to it, which is what religious uh, psychologists would call a moral community and as a set of beliefs that's increasingly uh, losing contact it's got contact points but it's losing whole palm contact with with reality is becoming more religious like but i i mean when you say things like quasi religion and people are like what and so is intersectionality a religion makes for a kind of more straightforward articulation. But I think the answer at present is still no. Right. You just see a lot of religious behaviors, the, the religious impulses coming out, which have deep psychological and social roots in human psychology um, and in sociology. As far as your question, just to bounce back a minute sure. to the atheist movement and the social justice thing, I actually have a harder core view than than Helen does about that. I think that the atheist movement started with the rationalist skeptic type people making some pretty bold claims. Sam Harris, for example, in the end of faith coming right off of nine 11. Then you have Richard Dawkins with the God delusion, huge things. Of course we can talk about the other people, but those two are really the, the really big moves. And what happened was you set up this kind of social view that you have the atheist movement standing against especially in the U.S., maybe Europe, Christianity, which was very anti-gay and very retrograde in terms of what uh, women are able to have, and then also anti-science. There was a huge push, for example, in the late 2000s to get creationism back in schools across most of the South and the Plains states. So there was this huge kind of social push into atheism among especially young people to fight the anti-gay attitudes, the social justice type attitude, the anti-social justice attitudes that Christianity at the time was really clinging to, doubling down. So I feel like 
the second faction was actually made up of people who were deliberately coming to the atheist movement as a intellectual architecture that they could use to push social justice narratives because they saw Christian re- resistance against gay rights in particular, but also women and science as, as something that needed to be fought in the atheist intellectual architecture gave them that tool. So then you actually, that when it became the atheist movement, the atheist community, so to speak, it really was two things running in parallel that had increasingly uh, divergent goals and became more and more at odds. And I would actually argue that the social justice sector of that came out on top and destroyed the movement to where now it's just kind of banal even to talk about the atheist movement. Nobody cares. N- nobody needs to, really. I think that's exactly right. Um, well, so, so if, it, I mean, that's another thing that I wonder about, uh, if, if people don't care as much about the atheist movement, I mean, as someone who is a big fan of the four horsemen and everything, uh, and a huge Hitchens fan, you know, years ago, um, I, and, and someone that, that was kind of amused by provocateurs back then, um, it uh it it seems like intersectionality is 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 just this uh this very taboo topic that it's like if people are if people are getting tired of hearing about atheism is it is part of the appeal just that it's controversial and just in and, and just that it's an, a way of of like pushing buttons a little bit i don't i don't think so maybe for some people i mean you certainly have those those people but i think the rationalist skeptic type mindset that was in the atheist movement and then that's even present more broadly in academia and in the so-called skeptic mu- movement or community that's broader than just atheism i think those people who are committed to those ideals primarily became very concerned about the stuff intersectionality for example but the the stuff that's coming out of the far left academic world that's becoming increasingly detached from reality it's 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 getting more and more wrapped up in its own its own kind of canon of knowledge its own way of seeing things in fact its own lens to the world you've heard of rose colored glasses i used to talk when i was an atheist thing about jesus colored glasses and now we have it, essentially, it's almost a perfect metaphor to have the tinted glasses for, for intersectionality and feminism and critical race theory and how those things all come together. The whole critical theory, I don't know what color those glasses are, but the whole critical theory colored glasses. And there's, there's a Rainbow? perfect, well, it's almost like you have a stack of lenses. Mm-hmm. You have the race lens, you have the gender lens, you have the able lens, you have the trans lens, you have another, another, another lens. And in fact, the the epistemology, which is the way that you come to knowledge, the way that you claim to know what you know, underlying the intersectional framework is called standpoint epistemology, which says that depending on which uh, oppressed variables you qualify to to represent you have a unique perspective in other words you have a lens that allows you to see more of the world rather than the lens you know cutting away some of the light and so it's kind of in a sense gets it exactly backwards mm-hmm. um, each lens according to the standpoint epistemology gives you two views rather than just one view on reality and therefore people who become more who have more intersecting variables of oppression gain more and more additional views and therefore they're more and more justified in their claims without having to rigorously back them up. And so in that sense, you have kind of a, a, 
architecture that the skeptic type people, the, the rationalist people are just going to go right against because they're completely committed to rigorous epistemology. That's really what rationalist skeptic is about. Drawing on that, and it's, it's so literally like this within academia, one of the very first modules at an undergraduate degree talks about theoretical lenses. There were exercises, there were essays, there were exams on actually, you know, now we're going to put in our feminist lens, now we're going to have our queer theory lens, now we're going to have our Marxist lens, and looking at how you can look at the same text through these different lenses and have completely different readings of them, depending on which lens you use. And for me, coming from the sort of sceptic position, I was quite keen to understand what the difference between this and confirmation bias is. And I I came to the conclusion in the end that it really does just valorise confirmation bias. And they do get this picture, as James was just saying, that you're coming, that by coming from all these different angles, you're getting a fuller picture um, overall. But in fact, they they advocate coming from one thing if you if lgbt rights are your thing then yes queer theory this is the thing they you you just literally exclude anything that doesn't fit and you look particularly from that and that is a form of knowledge the whole idea of of objectivity of balance is 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 seen as as passe really (laughs) it's it's I mean, that, that was what worried me most in, in academia, because it, it's not hidden. They're just saying, yeah, this is what we do. Confirmation bias, this is a method for it. So so there might be some blinders, like, for example, someone might uh, might say that sexuality is some cultural construct and is conditioned into us, but then they'll... Uh, but then they'll say people are born gay and you can't kind of have both at the same, same time. Mm, um, and so, that's a shift so they kind of, at the moment. Right. And, and so, uh, but so there's hypocrisy there, but is this any different than any other, um, political ideology? Is this any different than even just general old patriotism or the NRA or any other abortion or any other, is, is there a difference between, between, um, the kind of intersectionality movement and any other? We can introduce a spectrum in a sense. So this gets into the religious psychology that I, I've spent these years studying at the very bottom. We have to ask, you know, what are religions made out of? At the, at the very bottom, what they actually represent is a certain type of moral community. This goes back to Durkheim, I think, was the first to suggest that they're moral community. So a moral community is a community built maybe not by proximity, you know, like your neighborhood, but rather by shared values, shared moral views. So a community that binds itself around moral views is known as a moral community. All religions are moral communities. Not everything that's a moral community is a religion. Mm-hmm. So when you start tacking on things such as ideologies— a political party often has an ideology at the center of that moral community that they also subscribe to. Plus, it becomes partisan. It becomes kind of a close-knit community. So at that point, you have this thing that I wouldn't say is religious yet. Mm. And it's already going to be more concerned with preserving its moral view, how the world should be. So you see that with political parties for sure. And they, they have blinders and blinkers and all of this stuff. And, you know, they interpret things in their own lenses because their, their centerpiece of what's going on is the, the moral community that, that binds them and the ideology that it's equipped with. I called these things at one point ideologically motivated moral communities. And I said that these are the proper generalization of religion. Religions are a special case. What makes it a religion at that point 
is when it further equips itself with a mythological or mythopoetic, which is a fancy word, mythopoetic structure to essentially provide a narrative for how the world works that's often rooted in mythological constructs that are usually having to do a lot with good and evil. And so typically that takes the form, most commonly I should say, it takes the form of deities or powers in, you know, in the world or whatever that almost are supernatural, but you don't actually have to have a supernatural force to have a religion. It also ends up, of course, incorporating other things. So you don't see, for instance, the Republican party doesn't have a set of rituals that all the Republicans have to do, but every religion incorporates ritual as a means to bind the community. Does intersectionality as a kind of broad community, for example, does that possess a ritual structure? I don't think it does not clearly we could start stretching and saying oh it's getting on twitter and doing certain things or there's you know, parades yeah <laughs> there are mantras that there are there are, are creeds. yes there are creeds and mantras there are things there's songs and chanting and, and 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 this kind of thing so it's it's kind of like if we have a spectrum of all the way down to just plain old moral communities your family's a moral community every group of friends you have you know you have certain jokes you can tell with certain friends and then other ones you know you bring in somebody new and it's a little weird that's because the the community the moral community that was that group of friends the the new person coming in from outside doesn't quite fit into that moral picture so you now have to and it's probably going to be fine, but you know, if you've ever had, this happens a lot in high school, you have two groups of friends and then you have that awkward birthday party where they both come and everybody's like, ah, but my one kind of friends and my other kind of friends, that's right. an everyday moral community. Are those religions? Absolutely not. Those are just groups of friends, right? But right. there's a little bit of a moral community, shared sense of values, mm. shared sense of how you see the world. When you start adding on more pieces, an ideology, a sense of purpose in life through the thing. So intersectionality as trying to save people from oppression or undue domination in society, that is definitely a purpose-giving uh, teleology, a teleological uh, structure that, that comes into it. When you start adding on these pieces, it becomes more and more and more religious. Are there rituals? Well, not quite, but there are chants. Are there places where the community gathers? Well, they kind of have conferences and things like that. So sort of, it's almost like it's growing kind of in that direction. And if the analysis that came out in the Atlantic the other day is correct, saying that it's people without religion seeking religion, then that makes sense. They're, they're kind of glomming each piece on as, as it develops and gets a little bit further I along. Think, I think it was Shadi Hamid. Was yeah, that's, that's that, who it was. The that's what, right. Islamic exceptionalism. So right. he's certainly got a background to see this sort of pattern. So, yeah, that, it, um, you would almost want to place, you know, your group of friends is on one end of the spectrum and then you're moving upward and then you're going to have political parties. Then you're going to move upward and you're going to have kind of this stuff where purpose really gets mixed in saving the world, for example, from oppression or saving the world from the evil liberals or whatever it happens to be. Cause we have these same kinds of cults on the right. You know, we right. see, we identify, um, social justice warriors with the intersectionality on the left and then look at the alt-right. These people are essentially social injustice warriors. They're the same thing. They're doing the same stuff. They, they have these kind of, especially when you get all the way to the white nationalists, they have this mythological structure of, you know, the ethno state, which drives their views. So you start glomming on pieces. At what point does it cross into religion? Well, there's a reason that religious psychologists spend entire chapters in their textbooks refusing to define what a religion is, because it's really a vague boundary and there's really a diffuse idea. So it's more 
accurate to, with intersectionality to say that it is definitely exhibiting many of the characteristics that identify religions as to whether or not it is one or not. Who knows? But what's beyond question is, are they behaving in a secular way? Are they behaving in a way where they forward their ideas? There's going to be debate about those ideas. There's going to be criticism of those ideas and the bad ideas fall. The good ideas stay. No, they're not acting in that way. They're saying we're right. And if you don't agree, you're a bad thing. In this case, racist, sexist, bigot, transphobe, whatever it happens to be. Here's this, uh, word that we're going to throw at you. That's some specified type of heretic. And therefore your opinion doesn't count. And so in that sense, there's a lot of religious stuff happening here. Yeah, I think it often is useful when because definitions um, get so messy, particularly when there's sort of uh, contention. It often is good to sort of look at things from from the from the opposite in in the way with liberalism. When we're trying to define what we mean by that, it's often easiest to say we're talking about the opposite of illiberalism, not the opposite necessarily of conservatism or the left or whatever. And I think that James, when he talks about secularism and looking at, yeah, intersectionality as a religion that could just be argued forever because of the complication, but looking at the idea of secularism, of separation of church and state, of freedom that, yeah, then it becomes much clearer in what sense we are relating intersectionality and religion, because there's a strong sort of historical element here. I mean, particularly in the UK, but also with increasing speed in the US, religion itself in the sense of God belief, spirituality, afterlifes, etc., is becoming less and less tenable to many people. But those psychological and social needs for community, for purpose, for morality aren't going away. So something is needed to some kind of community, some kind of moral purpose is needed by a lot of people. And intersectionality is appealing to a particular kind of zealous personality within a cultural milieu of academia of social justice of of a certain kind of leftism which isn't really driven by what we know as liberalism and what's really concerning about that is with separation of church and state it's clear we don't allow religious uh, religious beliefs to be privileged in any matter of the state just because you were say to go in and speak to a panel at congress and say well as a christian i believe blah 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 you don't automatically get treated like, you know, if you said, oh, as a Christian, I believe that the, the earth can't be heating up because God wouldn't do that to us. You, you don't, that doesn't go anywhere because we separate church and state. We recognize that religious belief convictions go none of the distance toward proving what you're saying is true. You're welcome to believe it in private. You're welcome to hold it as sacred as you want in private, but it doesn't gain automatic traction in the public sphere with something like social justice leftism, which is fueled by intersectionality as a heuristic underneath it right now, it appears secular. It appears to not have the religious architecture underneath it, but it's playing the exact same game. It's claiming that its scholars in its canon of literature in the uh, scholarly journals constitute special authority, just like priests and just like the scriptures in, in religion. They're claiming that they have final say you're on the wrong side of history. Therefore, what we say is is final. Or you, as a white man, need to shut up and listen. Your story's been told. So they're claiming both special access to information to be treated special, and they're claiming that they have final say, and those are both completely anathema to the liberal project, 
that they're not behaving in a secular liberal way, but because they aren't coming at it from God or gods or deities or some clearly mythopoetic structure that, that we understand as being religious, they don't get treated as though they're behaving in that anti-secular way. Mm, sneaking past us. Is there historical precedent for this at all? I mean, we talk a lot about kind of how human nature evolved and our ancestors. And has there been... Has there been a time in our evolutionary history before where where it was uh, people's people were uh, too biased toward um, uh, toward minorities or or people the the oppressed where the views became too biased because if that is the case that this is that this is happening it seems like um, looking back through history it would be one of the first times where it where um, where it seems like there's an argument where, where we're like, Hey, these, there's people that are being too oppressed and, and that view is getting, um, overly biased and, and we're having too much of a clouded lens. And uh, do you know where I'm, yeah, uh, where I'm I know, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I think that, that, that is correct. And, um, this is, this is new and probably the best person who talks about this is Jonathan Haidt because he looks at the, the emergence of weird societies, Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. And he shows essentially, and this, this is, um, there's been quite a lot of work done on this, that as a society gets more stable, as there is more equality, as there is more, people can relax a bit that they're, they're going to survive. We're not in an existential state of, of trying to, trying to keep ourselves and our family right. alive anymore. Then we get more liberal. We get more universal. We have the luxury of looking around us, thinking, um, morally in a more nuanced way, uh, applying our ethics to wider and wider groups. And this has, yeah, resulted in a really unprecedented, as far as I know from Western intellectual history, an unprecedented, uh, more interest in the oppress oppression of other groups and our own responsibility for this. So I I don't think there is a there is a precedent of something like social. But, yeah, and there's nothing. This is this had to be post civil rights. It wouldn't have been possible for it to focus on these kinds of topics unless it was post civil rights, post second wave liberal feminism. On the other hand, it bears similarities, which is not to say it's the same thing. It bears similarities with what Marx attempted with class, uh, deep similarities. But that's because Marx. And postmodernism, as it's gone especially toward intersectional thought, draw very heavily on Hegel, who had the master-slave dialectic. That, that's where the standpoint epistemology has its roots. So you have the master lives in the master's world, so he knows the master's world, and that's all. And the slave or the, the oppressed person is oppressed and understands that perspective simultaneously lives in the master's world too. So that person gets two perspectives and that's how you get back to that, that idea of where knowledge can be generated from the privileging of the, the viewpoint of the oppressed. And it's just slowly grown and metastasized. A lot of people conflate this postmodern stuff with Marxism and it's, they try to use terms like cultural Marxism, which isn't quite right. And they try to use this term that's been made up to purpose called neo-Marxism. Jordan Peterson's very big at saying, uh, Postmodern neo-Marxists. Go look up the word neo-Marxist. 
all it means is taking the same kind of structure that that Marx used in a postmodern way and applying it to to race in, in class and things. It's a word that was made up to purpose. It doesn't mean necessarily anything. But the the fact is that Marx and and these scholars that have developed these these critical theories have come up with or have the same root ultimately, which is that there are the oppressed who, given the right conditions, should be able to uh, invert the pyramid of power and and take over, and the the oppressors will be put down. But no, this the the this focus on immutable characteristics and oppression along those lines getting taken to such an extreme required the it's an it's an ironic it's a big irony required the overwhelming freedom that came with post civil rights post uh second wave liberal liberal feminism and a lot of universality and, and freedom that's never existed in the world really before unless it did in antiquity and we're not aware of it or something like that speaking of uh, when you're talking about having different groups of friends it just got me thinking a little bit about my own life and the different people that I spend time. I have this podcast where I go and interview different academics. And then I also then go on the road to, I'm going to uh, be performing in Little Rock, Arkansas and Oklahoma City and Wichita coming up. And, uh, and these are, you know, it's, there's obviously going to be some different political views when you're going to uh, perform in those kinds of play, especially where there's a lot of drinking involved mm-hmm. as opposed to going into academia. And, um, my, my question, I guess is, 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 do you feel like this is a bigger issue within academia right now? Or if this is, if this is a global, um, both, uh, yeah. both academia is almost completely infected. So, right. I mean, it's almost completely infected. We saw an article this morning in Inside Higher Ed, for example, where someone had accidentally forwarded our conceptual penis to the no, wrong why, person. Why don't, why don't you explain the conceptual penis paper? Okay, so people. the conceptual penis was an academic hoax that we just wrote absolutely ridiculous stuff, essentially claiming that penises don't meaningfully exist. They are not best understood as the male sex organ. They are best understood as a social construct, which causes most of our problems, especially climate change. And we managed to get this published in a peer-reviewed journal of probably dubious quality. But nonetheless, a peer-reviewed journal, a scholarly journal published this. And it made quite a splash last May. And so it was quite funny. I think it's one of the funnier things. I enjoy a good practical joke. It's a good practical joke. And so somebody forwarded it six months ago at the University of Delaware to the wrong person. That person apparently reported, uh, the, the one who, the professor who forwarded it and the professor who accidentally forwarded it to the wrong person was brought up informally reprimanded and, you know, permanent record, whatever that, that is. You got, you got in significant trouble just for forwarding along this joke. So academia is, is, quite inquisitorial now this stuff has gained a great deal of power and it can't easily be questioned but it's also being broadly internalized by culture at large for example um think back in your own life three years ago if i said cisgendered would you know what i mean i still don't know you still don't know what you mean see (laughs) it's it's nearly become a term that you hear all over the place words like cis Cisgendered, cis heteropatriarchy, these terms. You should be aware that I try to never watch the news or anything. Right. Okay. I try to not keep up with what's I tr- going okay, on. Okay. So these are, these are terms that have gained a lot of popularity, but I would say, for example, even myself, three years ago, 
even okay. being having a finger in this world, even three or four years ago, had never heard these terms. So there's this very rapid emergence in popular everyday culture about oh, here's ones here's ones you probably have heard inclusion and diversity. How big of an issue was inclusion and diversity as far as on the public radar a few years ago? Essentially zero. Now it's a, something everybody knows about the diversity board and inclusion. And after events like James Damore's Google memo came out and the diversity got the, the methods Google was using to, to promote diversity were questioned. Um, not even the, the goal of diversity. Damore supported the goal of diversity, but he questioned the methods and it was, he got fired. It was a huge mess global scandal you know the whole thing so these these terms have been forwarded into the public so i think it's being broadly internalized so it's a it's a complete problem in academia and in much it, it's filtering out very effectively into society i i think yeah a, a good analogy if, if we're looking at to what extent is intersectionality affecting society we, we have to sort of look at the different levels of it there is the academic level um that has evolved then there is the social justice level there is a mainstream social conscience there's um corporations uh needing to hit certain goals ethically which accord with the mainstream social conscience which comes from critical theory which comes from academia so it it's it is complicated and it's difficult but i think the best way to to see it is with an as again with an analogy with religion that i if we're looking at for example um islam that's probably you know in um there are there are countries which are more sort of governed by islamic belief than there are by christian uh, probably right now so there are people who write theology there are people who uh, dominate the universities they study the quran the hadith the the uh, the history and they know theology in great depth then within society there is another level this sort of filters out it affects things things change um ideas about morality about law they change according to what's happening in the universities but among the great general public you can find that there are people who have never read the quran they've never read the hadith they might not be able to read if they're but the the ideas are very much there you know there will be say in pakistan two percent of people who think homosexuality is okay 98 percent who think it's a sin they may not know very much theology at all but these ideas are so dominant they're so internalized that you don't really have to so i am now having um people get social justice activists certainly but also people more generally who don't really commit to these things saying things to me about my demographic you can't say that because you're a white woman or um uh, words can be violence uh, they create reality and they don't actually know where it's coming from I can show them how they're quoting essentially Foucault which has then gone through um, say uh, Judith Butler and wh where it's actually how it's come but they don't know where it's come from it's just in there in the zeitgeist in the air they've internalized it it just seems true but don't you feel like there needs to be a little more diversity in this anti-intersectionality? No, there needs to be loads more diversity. <laughs> loads more. I, I, uh, so it's, it's definitely, I mean, what's happening um, out in, uh, in the real world or whatever, and what's happening in ac academia is kind of a couple different things where you have... Uh, where you have academia, uh, where you have 
the, um, the dean or something like this saying, you can't have this kind of speaker. We can't have these kind of topics. And there's, there's kind of more control being taken. Whereas something like the entertainment industry where there is, um, an explosion of diversity all over in any modern TV show that you're watching or anything else. There's transgender and everything else popping up as these, these main characters. They aren't, they, they aren't ruled by the same, um, kind of system. They're, they're just, they are just solely going after ratings. I mean, the entertainment industry is solely trying to make money and they are, attempting to fulfill um an entertainment need and our and diversity happens to be a part of that for a lot of people i don't i don't think that that would it would be happening if it wasn't um profitable so there must be some sort of desire within the general population to see more diverse opinions whether it's just that people are bored with seeing the same old show over and over again or they feel some social pressure or or this is just a, a product of the left or or maybe it's it's um a product of uh, having having now uh a president that many would argue or is um is perhaps prejudiced um and and but but no one's no one's making say hollywood diversify their programming um they are they are choosing there's a to lot do that. of pressure on them to do it both but, both from the opportunity because it's been broadly internalized and people do want to see it hmm. and why because just as helen explained you know this has become almost like it's part of the air it's just what feels true but this has been disseminated out through theories that were were being developed in the 50s the 60s the 70s i mean this is decades old and it's it's really worked its way out. And not to say that some of it's not great. It's what more diversity is fine. Right. But there's also a tremendous, there's, there's also a tremendous pressure. Look at what just happened with the Black Panther movie. The first thing that you see pop up about it was the insufficient LGBT representation in Black Panther movie. Mm-hmm. So there's tremendous pressure. If you put out a movie and it's not sufficiently diverse or you put out a show and it's not sufficiently diverse, you can damn well bet you're going to hear about it from a whole lot of angry people. You're going to try to boycott your whole thing and they're going to make a big fuss about you. Some of that's good publicity. So people will play the game, but some of it, it works. It pressures them to make a more and more and more, um, a more and more conforming, uh, to the diversity initiative here, uh, movie next time. If they, they don't want to make people just lose it and go completely throw eggs at their movie ratings and, and to shame people for going to the film and turn everything into a freaking culture war. But I mean, the, I, the religious right has been my entire life has been protesting Marilyn Manson or rap music or uh-huh. whatever movie. And it, yeah, so thank it, you for making our point that it's very religious in nature. <laughs> right. But, but it, it hasn't, it definitely. I don't think that it influenced, um, any of, of the, uh, uh, entertainment choices that happened. I think that, that, that because it was, provo- um, provocative and, uh, controversial, I think that only helped the entertainment, uh, industry. And it, I don't know if the same thing is happening now or if it's, uh, or if it's different in some way. Um, I, well, this, so when, when you saw the religious right fighting against 
um, Marilyn Manson or whoever, right. for example, the religious right wasn't quite socially ascendant in our broader culture. And right now we have this diversity leftism for a variety of reasons. In particular, it got accelerated like crazy under the current presidential administration. Um, for various reasons, it's extremely ascendant right now. It is becoming the new, as Helen used the word, zeitgeist. It's what people feel is happening in the world. So, of course, they want to be in touch with what's going on, and they want to want to be that way. Now, coming from the southeast, I can tell you that people are not everywhere so excited about uh, increased attempts to, as they would put it, force diversity in front of them on a television screen. Um, right. So whether it sells or not, of course, where are the studios? New York and California, um, very uh, pr- kind of left bent areas. I guarantee you that you you wouldn't see the same attitudes coming if the studios were in Omaha. No, <laughs> well, I, but they are carefully measuring ratings and, and and going by how much money they're making. You know, it's all a money grab at the end of the day. I mean, you can look at any. Any news organization that has, you might have Fox News and MSNBC at two different sides of things, but they are, they are both not so much giving people some absolute, uh, unbiased truth. They are giving people what the buy. kind of stories that will keep them watching right, this yeah, 24 that's... hour news cycle all the time. And so, it's kind of, it's kind of independent. Of so following the truth. post post civil rights, we've had this whole push. And this of course has been largely good. This whole push to continue, continue the, the whole diversity narrative has become very popular in culture. You want to be hip. You want to be woke. Right. You, you want to be like, I'm not, I'm not one of the, those hillbilly racists. Right. And so to stand out from that. And of course, this is mostly great. We, we should not want racism. We should not want sexism. We should want those antique views that we're actually doing harm to go away. Uh, but it's very popular. So all, all we're talking about here then is that, like Helen pointed out, that you have this architecture in the in the university that's producing the scriptural canon and the theology if you would uh of what's going on here and that's filtering out into a society that's now broadly accepted it just like how you know when when the god delusion came out for example that was not even that long ago it was a huge mess everybody's like oh it goes already i remember the god delusion showing up i was already an atheist shows up in my house and i was thinking i'm not opening that book you know, that's somebody's going to go to hell for that, even though I didn't even believe in hell, mm-hmm. you know. So it was it was very much not a part of the cultural furniture. And now after the atheism movement, stuff like that's just part of uh, part of normal. But we've had this trend where this because we do need to still get rid of the vestiges of sexism, and racism and things that are holding out in some systemic oppressions that still hold out in society. It's become very popular. So, of course, it's very salable. You have a huge audience for this kind of thing. Um, but on the other hand, you also have graduates of these programs that are going into media who are then putting tremendous amounts of this stuff out and creating pressure as they become editors to only publish that kind of stuff. And then the public also reacts that way. Like the Black Panther movie should be celebrated as a gigantic step forward. And, but instead, all people are doing are complaining that it doesn't have enough gay it's people in it. Not enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's. This is a, it's, it's tricky because there's, and I'm really happy that you guys are on to express this point of view that I, I don't think is expressed enough. I, I do believe that, but, but, but I also think that there are two sides of it as I know I'm going to go into Little Rock next week and someone after the show will come up to me and, and, uh, and 
um, after hearing me do, you know, I, I'm, if anything, a fairly liberal comedian. I don't do politics on stage or anything. I mostly talk about animal mating behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and so nothing I say is terribly controversial these days at the moment. But I'll have someone inevitably come up to me after a sta- after the show and want to tell me a joke, and it will, of course, be some racist street joke, and in and there, which means that, and I just got done. If they're paying attention, I just got done. They just watched like a liberal-ish comedian on stage. That means for them to come up and tell me a racist street show, one, that's probably the only joke that they know is, is a racist one. And two, they assume that it's so okay that just everyone in the world is going to be okay with this joke. So there's definitely, there's definitely areas of the country and there's definitely people out there that are still a little ways behind, if you ask me. And, and I think that there's going to be oscillating on, on both sides of this and, and, I don't, I don't know if it's going to find balance or if it's going to get more and more extreme as, as it seems, um, is that, is that your concern that this is only going to become more, more extreme on, on kind of the, the left side of things? For a while, yeah. Uh, it's more concerning that they're going to gain even more power than they already have to where their power becomes explicit mm-hmm. over our academics our academic institutions because that's where we educate people that's where we educate our next generation of of scholars for one thing it's also where we educate our next generation of professionals of managers of media producers of politicians and so if what they're doing is in a sense creating a moral hegemony on their side that the only correct views the only truth the only thing you can be exposed to you shut down a speaker because you don't want people exposed to heretical ideas if they keep pushing this view and finally become explicit where they have full control of the university that only left-wing social politics is acceptable at the university then that gets the imprimatur of our the stamp of approval of a gigantic one of the the best educational system in the entire world so what comes out of that you end up educating a generation or maybe more than a generation of people who think that this is not just the truth it's the scholarly backed there's a journal article there's a there's an essay there's a whatever there's proof that this is correct and it's the way to think but the thing is that's the same thing we saw when people would say, well, how do you know that such and such religious belief is true? Well, it's in the Bible. The Bible is an authoritative source. And all these people, meaning that my church, say it. It's the same thing. If you have this canon of literature that they're appealing to, the question is, with the Bible, is, well, how do you know the Bible is true? Well, how do you know this canon of literature is true? The problem here is that it has all of the stamps of our academic institutions saying it's completely legitimate whether it actually is or not. And they're making it harder and harder to ask that question. So my fear in the shorter term in particular is that they're going to increase the amount of power that they have directly over our academic institutions and use that just like they openly say to intentionally remake society in terms with their academic goals. Hmm. Because in in my period that, that I studied the universities were controlled in this way by religion. It, well, they were Christian. Right. This was the way of knowledge production. It was the authorization. And there is a very real danger that the that knowledge production, the authorization is becoming increasingly left-wing. Um, in the last few months, we have seen people explicitly say that conservative views are not welcome, that centrist views are not welcome, without any further 
justification for this. It's just, well, that's conservative, as though that is wrong. That's the same as being wrong. I mean, mm. I think conservatives usually are wrong, to be honest, but we also do need this this balance. We need to 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 have views and counter views to keep to to keep things going i mean who was it recently i think it was adam grant who recently uh, wrote about the way in which if one side dominates completely it not only stops being productive it stultifies it also gets increasingly silly because it is just building on itself it really needs conservatism or something like to, to push back at it to mm. make it defend itself to make it justify itself modify and qualify itself or it just goes nuts and to be honest it's going nuts and it could be the case even without the going nuts if the, say the conservatives are wrong say they're wrong about i'm not going to say this is what's true it's not true but let's say that they are wrong literally wrong about 100% of their stuff, right? And so then somebody articulates a conservative view to me and I'm like, well, that's conservative. Therefore, it's wrong. But that's still a non sequitur. I have to be able to articulate clearly in response why that view is wrong. And if the argument can't be made, then we're no longer dealing with with knowledge production the way we understand it. We're now dealing with with orthodoxy. We're now dealing with appealing to a doctrine or a moral a moral community's uh, standing in order to justify knowledge, which is a complete departure from what we've done for the last 500 years in learning how to justify knowledge. Just like how the Catholic Church put Galileo under house arrest and all the rest, and they burned Giordano Bruno at the stake for saying that stars out in, in further into space are the same thing as the sun and refusing to relinquish his heretical views, that only being one of them. Uh, just like the the church had all this power to completely control knowledge production, and if it wasn't consistent with scripture, with Catholic orthodoxy, then they were burning people. I don't think we're going to see intersectionals burning people, but you really, when when they if they were to get complete control of the academic institutions and they start saying what kinds of papers can and can't be published, what kinds of questions can and can't be asked, what kind of information can and can't be studied. All they're doing is leading us away from being able to answer hard questions that need answers. Um, the example here at PSU recently with Bruce Gilley uh, that published a paper about uh, colonialism, an argument for colonialism. This is, this is a topic that maybe he's 100% wrong. Maybe he's 80% wrong. Maybe he's 10% wrong. He's some percent wrong, maybe. Probably everybody is almost always some percent wrong. So there's a debate to be had. There's a, let's find out what's right. Let's find out what's wrong. Let's debate the thing. No. Paper gets retracted. You aren't allowed to talk about colonialism in a positive way. Well, what if he's right? Now we've lost that, right? It's, it's been censured. You aren't, he's not just wrong or taken to be wrong, I should say, in the factual sense. He's taken to be wrong. In the moral sense as well. And this is chilling toward producing more knowledge. This is not to draw too extreme of parallels, but this is what happened under Stalin when Lysenko put forth his bogus biology, his bogus botany, and people starved. If you questioned Lysenko's botany, they dragged you off to the gulag and or they shot you. And so you question Soviet biology, Soviet science, and you that's it gone what happened tens of millions of people starved because if you go if you if you have wrong answers and you just keep doubling down on wrong answers um bad things happen when does that happen well when people can't question 
the wrong answers that are the answers that are being given. Right answers, wrong answers, everything has to be questioned. The scientific knowledge production, so this is a science show, scientific knowledge production is hypothesis driven. You put out the hypothesis and you do everything you can to try to show that it's wrong. And whatever survives, we take as provisionally true until we can find ways to show that it's wrong or develop a more comprehensive theory that subsumes it, which has been known as a paradigm shift and so on, like you see from uh, Newtonian mechanics got subsumed into Galilean, uh, sorry, Einsteinian mechanics. Mm -hmm. So, uh, (laughs) as someone who's had a problem with institutions his whole life, and I I never went to college, and I I mean, I... I, I, I'm just, isn't this just commonplace in all, I mean, public school was, I mean, I remember growing up having to, I mean, every, every country is, is conditioned to stand up and worship a flag of whatever arbitrary boundaries they happen to be. Sure, nationalism. It's absolutely commonplace for ideologies to dominate society over and over and over and over again. It's very recent that we have pushed back against this, that Mm. we have developed liberalism, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of belief. This is not something we can be complacent about when we see it happening again, that something is trying to get intellectual and cultural dominance, that it is starting to threaten freedom of inquiry, then we need to take that very seriously. We can certainly say, yes, this is happening. This has happened before. It happens all over the place. It's not unique, but that doesn't mean it isn't a problem. Right. No, I agree that it's maybe a problem, but I guess what I'm... And so let me me turn to the university a second, right? So... The university, by its intentional architecture, has been built around the concept of academic freedom. Is it an institution? Yes. Is there bureaucracy? Yes. Is it perfect? No. So what? Why do professors have tenure? Why does tenure exist? Is it so that professors can go work hard for a couple of years and then screw off the rest of their lives? No. It's so that they can ask uncomfortable questions without fearing being fired. That's the conceptual purpose behind tenure. So the concept of academic freedom is built into the academy. So if you take take... the very centers of our knowledge production, which identified very early on and enshrined the idea of academic freedom. And then you tell them, you can't ask those kinds of questions or we're going to can you tenure or not. Do you see that as a different kind of problem right. than standing up and saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day as a nine-year-old? Right. Right. That's that's a different kind of institutional problem than, you know, we're all Americans, so we're going to go through these American rituals. And so on. So there's right. another, by the way, moral community thing, right? All of nationalism, we're going to say that here's a ritual. I pledge allegiance to the flag and so on and so forth. It's a ritual pop that's in the spectrum that we were talking about earlier, just to throw back to that. Yeah. I mean, it's just that colleges have always seemed to me to be a little bit of a fragile womb. And, and there's been, I mean, as a comedian who sometimes does college work, there is and has always been you go in as a as a performer as a speaker and they don't they don't say do whatever you want they have very strict guidelines about not swearing or not doing this or or talking about that especially you know if you go to a private school you might not be able to do a god joke or something like that. they've they've always and had those well, let uh, me ask you real quick why can't you do a god joke at a private school that's religious i mean there does that have something to do with I, the religion controlling the institution right and no and i th- i and think so, it's i think it's silly how but, would you how would you feel about going in to say psu and doing a show say this week and uh busting out a good-natured fun little racial joke 
Yeah, I mean, I first off probably wouldn't do it just because they're not my favorite jokes to tell. But just uh, hypothetically, uh, what do you think the university's response would be? Right. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. But don't don't you think that it's it's more more about the university being like we're protecting these fragile. Say they say they have no boundaries whatsoever. I've done shows with no boundaries, and I go in to uh, to a freshman orientation. And I do uh, my act. Uh, predictably, freshman orientation show is going to be really uncomfortable. Later in the year, it'd be fine. But freshman orientation, you have a bunch of eighteen-year-olds that are that are are fresh out of their parents' house, and they're they're now taking on this new life. They're uncomfortable, and they don't know what's uh, what their new life is going to be like. They don't know the people around them yet, and they don't know what's okay to laugh at. Sure, yeah, so yeah. So people are actually censoring themselves, and and so yeah. when I when I see when I see like a bunch of when I see a bunch of like eighteen or nineteen year olds or something like that having having their protests or or forming their groups or whatever, I mean, aren't they just isn't that just a little bit of the process of so, learning empathy and then well and yeah then yeah get- but let me ask you a more press a more pointed question about this so I asked you what would happen and I really want you to give me give me a second give me like 30 second explanation you do I mean sure. I'm supposed to talk or whatever but 30 no, no. second explanation if you went to PSU this week and you busted out a good good natured sure but clearly racial joke sure in front of the crowd what would the university's response be uh, that's that's a tough question. I mean, a lot of times they might just not say anything and then not have me back. Um, but if basically if they don't, if what they do you don't think the crowd's responsibility? Also, the crowd and the university. How do you think that would play out? What do you think the internet's response would be? Well, I'm not sure that it would get out that far. But yeah, it's, I, I mean, that's a the crowd's response. It might make them very uncomfortable, right? And but, but like. People, people being made uncomfortable is not necessarily censorship. That's, totally, no, that's you know. not a thing. That's not a thing. But we right. wouldn't be worried so, if they were just uncomfortable. We're more worried that they're going to throw things at you, demand to have you fired, that's, uh, that's, banned from everywhere. The, the university. Sure. I, I mean, I, I know of a, I know of a comic who had their college gig canceled because of their views that they expressed on Twitter. Right. For mm-hmm. example. Okay. So let's roll back. The second part of my question is. Yeah. Do you think that the response that you would experience in 2018 compares with the experience that you would have had if you did the same thing in 1998? And I mean the yeah. institutional response. You think the institutional response would have been the same level of control of what you're allowed to say, 1998 versus 2018? I don't know how long you've been doing this. Um, I've been doing it since 2004, so that would be an easier to frame of reference for me. But um, yeah, sure, I, I think that you could, quote-unquote, kind of get away with more um back then and in particular i'm i'm really interested so let's say instead of it being you let's say it was a professor and right. he decided to just go on a whim and do a comedy show so this right. is a faculty member of psu right and he goes and makes a vaguely but good-natured racial joke right right and i'm not even talking about because racism is more or less accepted i mean i want to know what the right. the there's institutional a, a response like is. jokes that you could that you could have that aren't that aren't racist but are racial and because and, I would forward the hypothesis right. that the institutional response has become absolutely more mm-hmm. censorious in the past twenty years and, and exponentially more. I mean just astonishingly more. That you just 
that that the institutional response had it been in the 90s my guess would have been look that wasn't that wasn't okay don't do that don't do that whereas now if it were a professor this person's going up on the diversity board they're going under a trial they're going to get accused of a hate crime no and the what i'm, yeah, what I'm driving no, that, at is that that, the, that shit is absolutely out of control and, and it'd be it's like you wouldn't make a joke I about understand. the prophet in in saudi arabia right if you went to one of a saudi university you would not make a, a, a kind right. of a fun joke about the prophet right um why because the institutional response is is going to be really disproportionate to to what you've done and right. that's what i'm thinking i'm seeing right. is that the institutional responses to infractions you have professors who forward controversial or um often not even terribly controversial views and the institutional response is overwhelmingly negative. You know, formal reprimand for forwarding an email containing the conceptual penis. Mm-hmm. Uh, accused of hate speech. Right. Uh, accused of hate speech. And then, you know, people being brought up on diver- diversity board trials uh, for for what seemed to be extremely small infractions. Right. This didn't, as far as I know, did not happen 20 years ago. When right. I was in the university 20 years ago, this did not seem to be kind of what was happening that people were getting put on trial over and accused of hate crimes over you know a poorly worded comment right 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 and you keep bringing up you know you can't go make a god joke at say a christian right. private college and what our argument essentially is is these two things are the same thing as far as a moral structure right, gaining right. institutional power goes yeah i i mean my and i think you're both making fantastic points and thank you very much for joining me i mean this is why i'm asking these questions yeah, totally. so that you'll give me these yeah, fantastic responses so yeah i mean again and and i'm i'm feeling now with this next point maybe i'm beating a dead horse here but but how much of this is just so so you take a topic like bullying uh-huh. Um, where the bullying is in, in certain cases is horrific and we want to limit that. But then obviously many people would say nowadays that, that we're, we are, this has gone out of control and we're bubble wrapping the children too much and, and, and this is kids aren't, don't have thick enough skin and, and we're taking all of these unnecessary actions. That's something that I'm, sure has been happening throughout <laughs> throughout humanity where where the kids these days are too fragile oh, or we're yeah. too easy on them and uphill both ways and the survivor's bias and so on yeah right and and so uh, and so yeah i i just wonder how i know this is absolutely new but i wonder how and and there's definitely going to be arguments that people are being um too politically correct um i'm just trying to get a sense of of how far out of control it is and and if it is something that is more isolated in academia because certainly um from my point of view out being outside of academia but following academics on twitter and when and uh hearing their views on this topic it does seem uh like a little personal. It seems like there's been a lot of people that have been attacked and now this has become a uh, bigger issue. Sure. Academics are much more afraid for the jobs than probably your right. average person, but it's, it's much leaking. more concentrated there. Yeah. It's more, it's stronger there. It started there and uh, universities had a huge kind of liberal bent that developed over the past five decades. So it's, it's kind of bigger there. Um, but this concept of bullying, right? right. Uh, if it, so a journalist 
Barry Weiss just put out the the thing with the Olympic athlete who's a child of immigrants and pulled off what was a quad axle or some immense skating stunt. And it was very exciting in the figure skating or something like this. I don't keep up with any sport, anything. So neither. So if I fudge that, <laughs> my apologies point is she made a tweet, something like, uh, immigrants, we get the job done or something like that. And there's just been this weeks long pile on that. She's said the most awful and horrendously politically tone deaf thing. People calling for her to be fired from what New York times or something like that. huge freaking scandal. Um, so if you want to put it in terms of, of bullying, bullying has to, I think, have an element of power. It's usually like the big kid shaking the little kid down for his lunch money or whatever, right? So the big kid's obviously more powerful. Um, here you have this huge amount of concentrated power. It's very strong in the, in the universities, but it's not just in academia if it's happening to journalists, mm-hmm. right? And it's not just in academia if James Damore got fired from Google for asking very polite questions in a very careful way. And it's not just an academic problem if James Damore is going to put out that memo and then the thing that gets published in, what was it, Gizmodo or whoever published it first, I don't want to accuse them if it wasn't them, whoever published it first, deletes the graphs, deletes the hyperlinks that go to his sources and just publishes the text and having removed things that made his point clear that he wasn't being the jerk that they wanted to paint him out to be. I mean, it's a a deliberate smear campaign to have done that. So it's not just in academia if this is happening with journalism, if it's happening within uh, certain corners of media, if it's happening within certain corners of government, if it's happening within um, other sectors than just – with Google, the tech sector. If it's happening in other sectors than just academia, it's not just an academic problem anymore. Right, right. But academics have had it the longest and probably the hardest because it's just been – the the whole moral bent of the university since probably 1968 right um yeah it's an issue I, uh, yeah from from me i i was from my point of view hold on a second uh so i think that when when i got um some responses back it uh people were just kind of interested in if i don't know how to phrase it but, but part of it was how much of it almost seemed like how much of a priority is this? Because when you look back through history, there's been a series of kind of oopsie daisies. We did seem to <laughs> oppress a lot of, a lot of groups of people. And so uh, that it, a lot of people just feel like that is why there is this bias and, and this caution. And, and there's still, there's still, so say you don't, Say, take a police officer who is, um, not, uh, not biased in, in any way and is uh, just trying to do a, a good, fair job. They're still, um, operating within a system. Take, take drug laws, for example, which were something like marijuana, which was, uh, which was put in place as basically prohibition ended. They needed to retain jobs and, and they renamed cannabis marijuana to target Mexicans to make it this race thing. And, and drug laws are something that have a history of putting minorities in jail and unequal amounts. And, and one could argue that the, uh, that the drug laws in, in particular are incredibly destructive and probably biased and prejudiced. And so now you have a, uh, police officer who is not 
biased in any way and we shouldn't be accusing them of that but they're still operating within this system where the foundation of it was from many people's point of view not that that necessarily makes it right or accurate maybe maybe it's not but it seems like there was quite a history of racism putting this system in place and yeah, it systemic seem- racism is real mm. systemic right. racism is a real problem it's, it's absolutely why we have this um why, why it's got this mass appeal there is great guilt about past sexism racism right. colonialism slavery there are and, real problems existing still right. too in those regards yeah and these ideas you know they're they're the, the, the current intersectional view is is trading on on the good name of the civil rights movement right. second wave feminism gay pride right right etc and 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 the last majority of people don't really know the theoretical underpinnings. They're not deeply involved in the thinking. They're just wanting to be good people. This feels good. This feels right. And right. it's now that the problems are, are come, becoming more clear and we're trying to make them more clear because there's, there's a real inconsistency of principle, of liberal principle here. Let me draw a metaphor for sure. you. You might get. So imagine you're driving. We got snow on the road. It's Portland winter storm. Was it Olivia? Is that what they're calling it? Some winter storm hit snow everywhere it's chaos actually it's actually pretty good today um anyway you're driving on the road maybe you're a little drowsy maybe you're a little tired whatever you start to drift to the right you know you hit that rumble strip or you start to bump the curb is the correct thing to do to just suddenly jerk the wheel as hard as you can to the left with no compromise right absolutely not the 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 driving process is in a sense a conversation with you and the car on the road. Right. And so what you have to have is an intelligent ongoing conversation where if you go left, if you turn the wheel left to fix that rightward veer, you right. have to still pay attention to the center line. You right. can't go over that. You can't spin your car and go in a ditch just because, oh, I'm going to the right quick. It's hard to the left as possible. Right. So what's necessary is to be able to have the conversation. So let's say systemic racism, and it is. Not even let's just say. Systemic racism still exists. It's still a problem. Success uh, is same in sexism to whatever degree. These are still problems. They still exist. They still need to be addressed. This, of course, gives the movement broad appeal. But oversteer is not good. Right. And... I doing love this, this metaphor. Yeah, doing this unintelligently is just going to crash your car. Right. What's utter, utterly Im- uh, crucial is to be able to maintain the conversation. And right now what we have is a whole bunch of people who are saying, no, pull the freaking wheel to the left as hard as you can. And if you don't, you're a racist. Mm. Right. Right, right. If you don't crash this car, you're a racist. Right. And other people are like, we're going to crash. We're going to crash. We're going to crash. And like, shut up, racist. Right. This is what the problem is. The yeah. problem isn't. Are there, are there problems in society that still need fixing? Of course there are. Are these people speaking to the problems? Yes, they are. Are they advocating solutions? Probably to some degree, yes. Are they allowing the debate that makes those solutions best possible? No. Right. Absolutely not. It's their way or go off the highway. Mm. Yeah. Well, it seems like we're living in a country spinning out of control a little bit right now on, on both sides of things and jerking the wheel all around. Oh, I can tell you about it on the right if you want, but we don't have time for that. It's um, everywhere. It's not. This isn't just a left-wing problem, right? right? You have the right doing the same thing on uh, – they've been on it with, with abortion for a long time, with guns, with lots of issues you can't talk to them about. They don't want to hear it. They have the right way. It's the only right way. It's the same kind of thing. So these are people like, oh, no, society's drifting to the left. They put a trans person on my favorite show. Quick, elect Trump. Jerk the wheel as hard as you can right. to the right. Um, yeah, we right. call this existential polarization where people mm. see a problem on one side, the, the extreme problem on their own side. So they start internalizing right. 
the problems on their own side and reacting against the other side. Mm-hmm. And this this is happening very much on, on both sides. We do have the far right seeing absolute catastrophe in the left and seeing it as the whole of the left. And we have the left the, seeing the um, the neo-Nazis on the far right and thinking that's the right. whole of the right. And it's, it's uh, yeah, it, it's a big mess and um, everybody will want to read our manifesto against yes. the enemies of modernity. And where, the, so, where can they find that? <laughs> that's on Aereo magazine. Oh, awesome. Yeah, they, it, they, they see each side is driven both by moral disgust. Mm-hmm. They think what the other side is advocating is just morally disgusting. It's outrageous. And they're driven by... Outright fear that society will fall apart. Every good thing that we've achieved in the past, however long, whether it be all of human history, whether it be the last 50 years, whether it be the last 20 years, all of the good in society that we're achieving through our, our, the left through the left side stuff, the right through right side stuff will be lost if the other side is allowed to have power. And this creates an existential threat equipped with a lot of moral disgust that's driving the crazy polarization. Right. That's, I mean, that's a view from 50,000 feet of what's driving the polarization. It doesn't give you a recipe for fixing it, mm-hmm. but it has to start with, with being able to ask questions, to have conversations, to not just get shouted down as a racist or not just get shouted down as some insane left wing social engineer or whatever the right says. They say it in slightly more, um, gentle sounding terms with less opprobrium attached to them at the moment, but that doesn't make them different in what they're doing so this is the big problem and the the solution is to be able to have conversation to be able to ask questions and anybody who's saying no our moral view is absolutely non-negotiable so we're not going to ask that question you fill in the epithet you infidel you heretic you blasphemer you uh racist you sexist you um bad american you un-american you know communist what was it communist socialist marxist something 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 the right one used to just string them all together and even make sense right and uh people who are doing that are regardless of where they're coming from they're committing the same error they're they're they are sinning against if you will and i'm happy to use that term in this context the tenets of liberalism that stand out differently from these sect things because liberalism not democrat party liberalism but liberalism in the the sense of uh you know thomas paine thomas jefferson so on and so forth the 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 classical liberal view uh that is unique among these systems because it has inbuilt a method of self-correction it is the only one of these systems that openly says we want to question ourselves and improve what we're doing. That's what makes it stand out because people will say, oh, well, isn't you're advocating for secular liberalism? Isn't that just the same thing? No, it's the only one of these systems that questions itself, mm-hmm. that openly invites questioning itself. And if it falls, it, it, it will adjust. That's the key to what we're talking about. Right. And we're identifying it's a religious we're saying religion here um jonathan roush in the 1990s in a book called kindly inquisitors called it the fundamentalist impulse uh the unwillingness to have conversation the unwillingness to compromise or see what the other side is saying that is the part that's fundamentally non-secular and sadly we only see it when it's a a recognized faith doing it Mm -hmm. that's really what we're kind of driving at uh, Helen, anything, anything to add that you'd like to see, um, kind of change in, in terms of, of uh, how to gain more clarity on these uh, issues, how to perhaps create more balance? 
<laughs> it's a, so it's such a hard question right now to, yeah. to figure out how well, to how to gain balance. Well, you've this. you've covered it in, uh, nicely. Yeah, I I, I just uh, keep thinking we we just want to try to get be, to be more consistent to just to to try to go for a, a consistent liberalism, which um, I mean, not uh, those of us on the left. I might I might suggest that the antidote to intersectionality is what we might call unionality. That's a math joke. Um, <laughs> nobody laughs at math jokes. So the opposite operation, in a sense, and mathematicians yeah. are now going to be upset, of intersection, which is the, the and operator. You have to be, say, a person of color and a woman to be in the intersection, is the or operator, and that's a union. So if you are a person of color or a woman, you now qualify. And mm-hmm. then, so the, I would say that the, the antidote to intersectionality is unionality, which would be to look to some what psychologists call superordinate identity, some identity that's higher up. Nationalism has in the past worked very well for this. You see a lot of those old Superman comics, you know, don't be racist, don't be sexist, we're all Americans. So they appeal to some superordinate identity that everybody shares in common. And in here, I think what we need to be looking for is to see people who disagree with us, not as sexist, racist, Nazi, commie, liberal, pinko, whatever, libtard, not in these these tribalistic terms of, of, of being the enemy, but rather as being human beings trying to answer questions about society. And then you, you can see them on a level, you know, maybe they have wrong answers, but they're trying to be, they're trying to do the best they can with what they know and the way that they view the world. And then to start introducing willingness to compromise. The hard part is if you believe that we're in an existential state where society is going to fall apart if the other side gains an inch more ground, it's very difficult to be willing to compromise and say, let the other side win a little bit. Mm-hmm. For example, here's a great example. Trump's administration is going to do more damage to the Republican brand ever. If the if the left wanted to beat Trump and do it properly, they would drop resist completely. Just let him have all the rope he wants. Let him keep running with it. Keep pointing out this isn't normal. This isn't normal. You don't have to say anything more. We're not normalizing this. Let the lawyers do their jobs. Speak out when he does something outrageous, but don't lose your head. Right. Because the saying is, you know, give them enough rope to hang themselves. Right. Th- this guy's this guy's pulling rope in with both fists as fast as he can. Every time people lose their head over him, and as the Republicans, I live in the South, I hear all the time, the, the right says all the left is doing is screaming at the sky about Trump. And it gives them a way to 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 make it look like the left is just stupid and, and whatever. If they just let Trump run with it, they would do a much more effective resistance than screaming their heads off about every single thing he does. There's um, a real lack of strategy going on at the moment. We, because yeah, it's, well, it's social media. People get people get worked up. I'm, well, I'm, that and existential I've kind of fear. Off of it myself. Mm. And existential fear. Yeah. They fear that if Trump is allowed to gain a few inches of ground, everything's going to be a disaster, which isn't true at all. The right. system is still going to self-correct. Right. Uh, what will happen is less clear. So I would really urge anybody who listens to this who wants to do something for themselves is to try to look for places where you yourself have this feeling like if people I don't like gain another inch of ground, everything's going to fall to shit. And then to wheel that back a little bit, ask yourself, is that really true? What is, is really, is society going to fall apart if we, end up getting, say, retrograde laws passed under Trump's administration? Or is what's going to happen in the next administration, what's going to have a huge political backlash behind it, going to reverse those laws? You know, um, That's why I said that it's so much more concerning for me that the university is being 
infected because that's knowledge production. That's how people right. come to believe what is true in the world at the highest you know level of standard in our society. That's a little scarier for me. All right. Well, uh, this has been fantastic. And thank you both for coming on. Helen, anything to add? I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> well, th- uh, all right. Well, that's... I- yes? No? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, well, thank you both, uh, Helen Fleckrose and James Lindsay, for coming on. And uh, and where, if people want to find out more about what you do, where should they go? Probably you'll find me on Twitter, at God Doesn't. Okay. Twitter, H Pluckrose. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for joining me. It's fantastic and important conversation, and I very much appreciate you. Thank you. Next week on the podcast, I'll be talking with Brittany Alpern at OHSU about ADHD. It's an important issue because I have it. So we're going to talk all about that. Awesome conversation. And do not forget about a Jamaica Mushroom Retreat, May 5th through 13th. I would love to see you all there. Uh, well, not all of you. There's not enough room for all of you. I would like to see some of you there. Make sure and sign up now before all the spots are taken. Go to mycomeditations.com to learn more. Also, the outro music is by Tooth Lures a Fang. Thank you to Jimmy Fro with the Jimmy Fro Podcast for editing and making this podcast sound lovely. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.
Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich- I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I, I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my- <laughs> <laughs>